0: So here we are. We've come to the nearly to the end of our retreat together. Uh, congratulations, everyone! It's uh, it's been quite a process that um, we've all been through here this last week together. Um, I feel like I've been here forever. <laughs> Is there any world outside of IMS? <laughs> In everyday life my weeks go a lot quicker than this one has gone. <laughs> it's felt very, uh, a, a very rich and fruitful time and um, a wonderful opportunity uh, to uh, be able to practice. And um, Although the form of the retreat will soon be um, dissolving, And uh, we'll be going our different ways. the practice remains, the refuge remains. Um, So um, hopefully in this retreat we've had a a sense, um, for those that are fairly new, beginning to have more of a sense of this um, practice, this true meaning of yoga or religion. Not so much the external forms, but the inner uh, commitment to awakening and using... Uh, methods, ways to, to help us to align, keep aligning ourselves back to uh, presence, to being here, to being here more fully for our life, so we can contemplate our life rather than just blindly react and uh, be driven by unconscious forces through our life and have no real opportunity to reflect on the deeper nature of our being. So this is a, these retreats are opportunities for us to get a sense for the territory of practice, and for some of us to remember what we've already what we already know. All of us actually already know more than we remember. So another way of understanding mindfulness is remembering and uh, reaffirming and recommitting to what we already intuitively know. And our job here is just to to try and remind. You and ourselves that we, we uh, that we know these things, but we forget over and over again, and so we, we come into these situations, like retreats, to to reorientate ourselves and realign ourselves uh, to the deeper uh, opportunity we have in this um, miraculous and mysterious incarnation as human beings to to awaken. Um, to uh, to be in this mysterious process of life for the sake of deepening into uh, wisdom compassion. So this last week we've been um, cultivating different kinds of practices. We began with, uh, as the Buddha recommended, a drawing from his uh, teaching. Um, From the foundations of mindfulness, we began with the cultivation of being present, mindfully training attention to that which is here and now, to the body and to the breath. This is a very uh, foundation practice, but it's a practice that uh, begins to take us all the way. To, uh, to deepening into being present. And so the being more and more here for just one breath, being more and more here for the experience of our embodiment, to be more and more here to be able to reflect on uh, whatever is present for us as we experience it through the body. And so this, this attention to use, as we were encouraging and as we've encouraged in the the Buddha's teaching, to use the thinking mind that usually tends to wander all over the place to learn that we can actually use thought to direct attention. That thought isn't an enemy or it doesn't have to constantly be obsessive or sabotaging to our capacity to be more deeply rooted in awareness, but it can actually be a friend. Simple thought like, how is it now? What's happening now? At any moment this thought can reorientate us to this uh, theme of practice, whether we're sitting on a retreat, whether as we drive on the freeway back to our homes, or we go back to our work, or our families, or our Uh, different kinds of situations. Uh, In any moment we can use a thought like, how is it now? So that's an invitation to be more fully receptive of our experience. And then as we use that thought to direct attention here and now, then beginning to recognize that attention has this receptive aspect. Is not just directing attention, but learning to receive more fully the experience here and now, particularly the experience of our embodiment as a way of rooting ourself in the present. So as that becomes a practice that we get more familiar with, it becomes an orientation around which we can be in life. It becomes a, a friend, the body experience of our embodiment rather than something that we're reacting to or we project so much onto the body it not being quite right somehow we're unconscious about the body we get obsessed about the body or fearful about the body's changing particularly as it begins to age (laughs) we begin to use the body as a as a, a foundation for this cultivation of presence and mindfulness how is it now? And so we replace the reactivity of our experience, and particularly of our embodiment, with a with a mindfulness, presence, receiving, listening into, softening around the experience of our embodiment. So there's this sense of friendliness rooting. Feeling more, little by little, a lot of us don't really feel that at home, Uh, anywhere. (laughs) But little by little, getting a sense of a home, ultimately a temporary home, but still, while we're in this life, this is our home. Feeling more and more able to feel a sense of homeness within our body, friendliness. So this first foundation that... We practice, very important, something we can continue throughout to explore uh, continuing this so it becomes a more stable, um, continual sense of uh, realignment with how is it now, coming to the body, coming to the breath. When we get stressed and on the edge of overwhelm, just being able to take three mindful breaths, deepening our breath, Feeling the breath coming into the belly, steadying and then breathing out, relaxing. These very simple things can just attune us and heighten us to a sense of slowing, remembering, realigning with this mindfulness and this presence. three deepening breaths. Breathing in, fill in the body with the, the energy of the mind, the awareness of the mind. So the body is filled with the presence of the mind, and the and the, and, and, and the, the mind steadies upon the body. And we begin to integrate these energies of mind and body through the practice of of awareness of the breath. And this doesn't depend on having to be in a still controlled environment like our retreat center here but we can explore this tomorrow as we begin to break silence and so easily get pulled up into our social persona and the activity and the momentum of our life starts to kick in and you know is is to remember something so simple as three mindful breaths can just remind us oh let me just steady here and now in this moment breaking that momentum or slowing that momentum that keeps relentlessly pushing us on. Feeling into the belly, feeling through down the legs, into the feet, grounding into the earth, allowing the mind to ground in its home of awareness. So this is a practice that that again and again, through the teachings of the Buddha, one's encouraged again and again to keep returning to, to keep cultivating, while we have, while we're with this body, while we're within our life. This way that, that, that then, then there's a, 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 a sense of the body being a support, a friend, a home. So cultivating this practice, and then we were learning as this develops to perhaps even begin to have a taste, maybe even a little taste, of the possibility of there being a a pleasing abiding, This, this, this calming meditation, steadying, learning to be more simple, renouncing and letting go of all the complexities, moments, being able to do that as a practice. I have enough in this moment to counteract that insatiable sense that it's never enough. Being able to go against that tide, that current of the mind that's always seeking to learn, to return, to steady and to, as there's some more um, maturing into this practice, we begin to notice it's possible to cultivate a pleasing abiding, this activity of samadhi, of gathering the body, the mind, the heart, sensations, the thinking mind, feeling tones within awareness, gathering or suffusing awareness, through the body and then, and then recognizing and abiding that's not dependent upon the circumstances of, of the world so much praise and blame, success and failure, happiness and unhappiness, all the different uh, inevitable ups and downs, gain and loss of the world that we are, we're subjected to, to realize there can be as we cultivate and deepen that practice as is said in the suttas, an, indep- an abiding independent from the grief and the worry for the world. This is, this is a fruit that we can, little by little, it's a patient practice, but little by little this is a practice, and little by little, even in small moments it will begin to bear fruits and it will develop. And then, learning as we carried on in the retreat, we began to explore what disturbs our ability to be more present, the different hindrances that can come up. We reflected on the the, uh, momentum of the mind wanting something else, or the restlessness, or the dullness, the aversion different kinds of, uh, how the the mind or the heart can be colored by these different kinds of um, powerful ways that obstruct our capacity for well-being. And realizing that when we're unconscious, we just get driven by those energies. We react to them or we we, um, get shaped by them. But with uh, this increased of mindfulness and presence, we can begin to reflect on those energies and see them rather than taking them so personally we start to reflect on them as as, as nature this is if you remember kitty Saro gave the analogy of uh, walking in a game park where where we are in south africa and one of the, the real joys of having been in that uh, country and, and lived and worked there has been the, the tremendous uh, power of the land's very alive there still in, in ways that it's, that it's not so much in, the, in, in, other, in other countries. It's very dynamic, very alive. And particularly if you go into some of these large areas that have been given over, not many of them left... <laughs> But given over to to, um, to to how it always was in Africa before the uh, you know, the land got raped and colonized and denuded and you know, these huge tracts of land where you can go out and just look at the animals in their natural environment. It's very thrilling. There's nothing like it. And sometimes we've gone for walks, you know. We we were, we were there last year we had a, a, a few a couple of friends, meditation teachers from America came out and we took them to one of these game parks and um, we went for a walk the ranger takes you out and uh, you, you walk silently in single file, the ranger has a gun, they don't Shoot the animals, <laughs> but if an animal charges they they, they kind of just with it, and the animal recognizes the noise and runs off but it, it's you know it's a pretty dangerous situation so um, and there's, there's nothing like it because your body is so aware you know usually in our we, we're so asleep but you're, you're rea- you, you realize this is not your usual territory you're in someone you 're definitely in someone else's territory, and every the cell in your body starts to become aware. You know, you're very, very present. It's like, you know, you start to get this extra sensory awareness. And we were, we were tracking, you know, through the bush. And then this uh, the Zulu guy that was leading us, Ndeki, N- he turned to us and he said, I see a pride of lion, let's go. And I looked, it was actually Eugene, who <laughs> <laughs> was behind. I turned around and looked at Eugene, and he kind of goes pale. It's like... <laughs> he, he, He's a teacher at Spirit Rock. You are like, you've got to be joking, haven't you? And then and Becky's off, and we're like, you know. And he's like so excited. And then we get we get near, and then he turns around and he says, uh, he says, um, look, he said that sometimes when when you're you're near a lion, um, you know, what you've got to do if they if they charge you, you've got to stand still. It's like, <laughs> okay. And he said, but sometimes as I'm at the front, I might be the first one that they go for, But it's so, and then he turns to gu- Kitty Tsai and goes, here, here's a quick lesson how to use the gun. <laughs> and meanwhile, I think i just nearly about to pick up Eugene from the floor, Eugene and Pan, they're kind of like, you know, and meanwhile I start praying to Kuan Yin. You know, please may we not see any more lions, please. please. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, it was... Um, uh, awake moment. <laughs> but in, it, it's a little bit of a, a stretch of the imagination, but to, there's a certain way that, when, with this practice that we can start to actually contemplate the mind with that same curiosity. And I, I think this is what I really wanted to encourage you know, for many of you. It's, it's rather than feeling, oh no, I've got another hindrance here and it's always like this, and I've always been like this, to, to see it with that same curiosity, it's, 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 a, it's like a kind of a, in the game park, it's an energy, it's, a, it's, it's like, oh, this is desire, this is fear, this is this old tendency that makes me curl up and feel like I'm nothing, or this is restlessness. You know, So that even if we can't sustain some steadiness, we begin to change the relationship to that which before would have swept us away and overwhelmed us. So this is the power of mindfulness, we begin to replace our reactivity or our identification with the flow of the mind, the content of the mind, with uh, these with moments of inquiry and contemplation and investigation, what does it feel like, where is it in the body? How does it shape the sense of self? Is there any space? What's the color? What's the tone? And then and then we began to notice that, you know, that all of these phenomena that we've been with, so much phenomena during this week, you know, people have talked about and you've experienced is, you know, where is it now? <laughs> where are all those intense experiences or moods or states of mind or feelings, you know, we, we start to realise how changeable it is, how fluid it all is, how ephemeral. So then as we deepened into our contemplation we might have had moments of really seeing that. Something that was so there, so strong, so me, and then we start to investigate with some steadiness of mind and look more deeply. And we realize, uh, uh, as Kidisaro said, quoting from the Dharma, uh, from the Diamond Sutra, that all conditioned phenomena, all dharmas, all things that appear, they're like a lightning flash, they're like a bubble, they're like a dream, they're like a a shadow. They have a reality and appearance, but then when you go to touch them, to grasp, to hold on, you can even talk about them, but you can't really actually really find a substantial thingness in all of this phenomena that we've been with, the phenomenon, the activity of the mind. It has this dreamlike appearance. It's there and then it's gone, it's there and it's gone. And even when it's there and we, when we start to inquire it reveals, it's full of holes, full of bubbles, full of spaciousness. And then perhaps in that way we might have started to get a glimpse sometimes of the innate spaciousness, the mind, as Ajahn Tate would say, the forest master, to discern between mind and its activity. To discern the, the fundamental nature of the, the mind or the heart, the jitta, and it's as 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 awareness, as boundaryless, as timeless, as spaceless, spacious, ungraspable, but imminent. And so we had uh, analogies, like one analogy, I, I don't know if Kitty Sarah mentioned it, but sometimes, he talks about again where we are in South Africa on the border of Lesotho, the Hermitages. There's uh, in the, at night, we have these. At this time of year in the summer, so summer, in fact, is going into autumn as, you, as we're going into spring here. They have a, these very extreme um, thunder and lightning storms. With it's a rainy time of year with these sort of like ferocious rains that come down. With a big water catchment area for Lesotho for um, Johannesburg. So um, the huge dams, and the rain, the rain is absolutely fierce. In in a few hours, it can turn the the whole of the garden area into a swimming pool. <laughs> it just sort of beats down on the tin roofs. It's it's marvelous actually. And uh, and uh, the the, uh, the um, accompanied by just these amazing um, lightning storms and thunderstorms. You know when they're right overhead, they're they're terrifying. There's all these different ways that you're supposed to be, like stand on one leg or crouch down, and I can never get it right. And it's like. <gasps> And one day I remember the lightning storm was so fierce. So, the best place to sit is a car, you know, just to sit in the car. But they very, actually can be very, very dangerous. But they're very exhilarating and very powerful. And then at night, sometimes, as the storm starts to move off, you just see the whole sky. It's just in the sky, they're very, very dark. It's not much electricity, so they're just these big expanses of very, very dark. Sky, and then if there is no full moon, you'll just see these effects of these lightning flashes. You know, they just appear, and you, and you just keep looking for the next. You know, I want to see the next one. I want to see the next one. I want, and they're just so dramatic. And then eventually, you you get to sense like each lightning flash, like phenomena, appears, but then it dissolves into this tremendous, infinite, infinite darkness. This sort of womb-like infinity, the blackness of the sky—it's uh, just like you just you know, just realise that's just like in a way like the the the, the mind—it's just constantly throwing up this phenomena, like there and it's gone, it's there and it's gone, all dissolving into this primordial awareness, this dark, mysterious. Infinity. Yeah, so sometimes I t- talk about it as luminosity, but it also has this mysterious dimension in that we can't really know it as an object, we can only rest and be in it. We find our refuge there. So in our retreat, you know, the deepest part of our retreat, just exploring, not through trying to necessarily. Capture anything but through letting go. This is the, the great gateway into the recognition of the heart in its natural state, its unmoving state. It's realizing it's not about finding and knowing but, but, but through uh, letting be, letting go, releasing, trusting. You know, this is very much something that Ajahn Chah, when, when you'd go, he taught a lot. When you go to his monastery, he's <clears> always <throat> saying, you know, like, go there to get enlightened. <laughs> and uh, he would say, Why have you come here? Have you come here to die? <laughs> well, no, no, I've come to get enlightened. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> You know, his his encouragement was uh, you know just just to rather than to try and get something in, in, in you know we're so much focused in our life in getting things and then when we come to practice we have the same attitude i want to get all these things you know all these accomplishments but really the way to mature and to it's not that we can't develop the skills but you know in terms of really beginning to enter this deepest abiding. It's not the way of getting, but it's the way of, of releasing. So in this, this mindfulness begins to then start to take a, a deeper dimension. At first, it becomes a training of attention. You know, and, and then as we deepen into mindfulness, as it deepens into awareness, it becomes something that we begin to trust. It becomes a refuge. It becomes a way that we can orientate within the moment it's, it's hard to let go if we if we don't know what we're let go we're letting go into you might fear we're just going to let go into chaos we're going to let go into blankness but what we're beginning to trust, what we can actually recognize as we let go, that this awareness, this innate awareness and presence of the heart, is alive. It's not a dead space. It's listening. It's alive. It's intelligent. It's responsive. It's 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 wise. It's intuitive. It, So we might begin to get a a, a sense of, of trusting that so this this placement of mindfulness at the at the um, as that which becomes a refuge as that which becomes a container, if you like, for our practice, something that ho- helps not only. We let go into, but something that helps hold the process of our uh, of our life, of our experience. In the in the um, training that that we received, this was very much something that. Um, when uh, Ajahn Chah taught was very much not so much about having a particular view or maybe even a particular method of practice, but really establishing this, this approach of, of wise reflection, awareness, uh, as, as a way of being able to reflect on our experience, what might be called uh, the, the, uh, the establishment of right view which is the first factor of the Eightfold Path. It's not so much having a right view, but being able to be in relationship to our experience from a place of awareness and contemplation and attentiveness, a place of mindfulness, which is much more fluid. When there's right view established in the heart, then whatever circumstance arises, we can work with it. It's not so dependent on having a a particular situation that we feel... Um, is you know, the perfect practice situation. You know, so many of us suffer when we leave a retreat like this because life isn't fit, doesn't fit our perfect practice situation. So we start to, to, to split our idea of spiritual life Uh, And, you know, what becomes real, authentic spiritual life is is these kinds of experiences that constitute maybe like 2% of the whole of our life, and then the rest, 90-odd percent, becomes like a wasteland. So it's really, so to actually realize that everything can become practice, that we start to gather in everything with this right view established, rooted in mindfulness, rooted in awareness, in how is it now, Can I be with the breath, be with the body, reflect where am I holding on, where where can I let go, where is suffering arising, what is generating suffering? Right there, right there. If we really can get a sense for this approach to practice then everything becomes, becomes the ground of our practice. Every situation, every relationship, every hindrance, every obstruction every impossibility. Nothing is outside of our capacity for practice. There's a lovely uh, story with, with Ajahn Chah when, um, <clears throat> which illustrates this a little bit, when one um, the first Western nun that practiced in Thailand, this is quite a long time ago now, in the 1970s, she was with Ajahn Chah for about five years, American woman, and in the course of her practice, um, at a certain point, it was rather curious unfolding, but she landed up becoming um, a born-again Christian, Um, because at that time different missionaries were coming into the monasteries, it was in Thailand, and she became quite an extreme branch of evangelical uh, Christian. So this, this was happening to, to this particular person. And at the same time, um, the monasteries were just being established in England. That's when I first met um, Ajahn Chah, when he first came to the UK in the 1970s. And, and very early on, our Western abbot, uh, Ajahn Samedo, decided that he would take a, a group of, of English Buddhists to inspire them over to Thailand and visit this monastery. So a group of about twenty people went over to Ajahn Sumed, uh, with Ajahn Sumed, uh, to Ajahn Charles Monastery um, with the idea that they would, you know, hopefully become inspired. But you know, at, at a certain point they met this nun who started to vigorously try to convert them to Christianity, which was which was in a particular you know, in, in the particular way that only evangelicals can do. So <laughs> So it was it was a really extreme situation. They were coming over to practice Buddhism, and they found themselves being subjected to this, you know, hard sell kind of um, conversion thing, you know. And, and it, not only that, the, the, she was convinced that uh, that Buddhism was the work of the devil, and Ajahn Chah was the devil incarnate, and you know. And it was like kind of really a little bit intense. And at a certain point, the Western abbot was got very very upset with this. And he went off to Ajahn Chah and, and started to complain. You know, like, you know, this, she shouldn't be here, you've got to get rid of her. And she's saying this and she's saying that and she's saying that you're the devil. And, and Ajahn Chah was listening to this. And, mm, mm, mm. Yeah. and, then, he, and then eventually he said, well, you know, maybe she's right. <laughs> <laughs> He loved to do that, you know, any view you had, he was like, get you to look straight back at your mind, you know, rather than trying to get rid of the person. What's your mind doing with it? It's not not to say that sometimes it's not appropriate to try and shift situations, but but it's a very very power, particularly for us in the cultures we live in, where we're, we're so dedicated to changing everything to get it right for us, to get it comfortable for us. And you know, we've 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 done we've manipulated every resource to the point of of exhaustion, trying to get it comfortable and right. Even now going to Mars. I mean it's kind of absurd, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. But part of me thinks, why do we why do we want to go to Mars? You know, like can we not figure out how to do it here first? You know, so <laughs> um but i have a friend of a friend of mine who's totally into all of this and says no there's lots of really cool technology that happens when you do all these space programs and anyway the the <laughs> the, uh, the this 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 obsession of trying to get the world right so we are comfortable the self feels in control you know it's it's a it's a it's our unconscious kind of drivenness that we have and so another f- a friend of ours who's a meditation teacher was telling us a- about, uh, he was teaching in a retreat center where there was a little stream outside with these boulders in the stream, rocks and things, and this meditator, all he could hear that as the stream was flowing was the stars and stripes, and it was driving him nutty. And then one, one lunchtime, the teacher found him out in the stream moving the rocks around. <laughs> And he went up and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm trying to change the tune. <laughs> and he was totally serious about it, you know, and it's like that's, that's the, what they call the yogi mind, the kind of crazy mindset that happens on retreats, you know. And I mean, in, 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 in real life, everyday life, we believe that mind. You know, we go and change the rocks around. I mean, in this situation, we have moments of being able to see the craziness of our minds, you know, how crazy mind actually is. Uh, so if we don't, as such, Charles said, there's no mindfulness, we're just doomed to craziness, really. and We're a, a kind of collective um, collusion. <laughs> so this, this being able to reflect, so Arjun, just being able to, to reflect and take that, that's a very transportable, in any situation, how is it now, returning to the breath? establishing mindfulness, establishing attentiveness, reflecting on the nature of mind, and reflecting while we're doing that on the, on the space, on the awareness, on the knowing itself. In its essence, the mindfulness, that which knows the phenomena of mind isn't the phenomena. It is that which is just pure knowing. So, in its heart, the the, the mindfulness is this activity of pure knowing, knowing the changeability, knowing the spaciousness here and now. So, mindfulness becomes a container, it becomes a guide, it becomes a, a place of practice something we can transport into every situation. It allows us to, to trust. We can begin to trust the practice itself. We can uh, you know, trust that as mindfulness deepens, a response that, that, that comes will be the appropriate response for how we need to be in life. Uh, the, the, this is enhanced when we also commit to um, you know, another container. That's in a way the mindfulness, of the internal container, an external container that's rooted in the, in, the, in the heart, that's aware, that's present, is the container of ethics. We talked about Is the being able to really have a sense for our inner sense of ethics as a guideline for our life. So it's very much recommended in the in the training, as that which actually begins to, as our life becomes more rooted in an impeccable ethical response and way of living, which is guided by not non-harming as, as much as we can, sensitized uh, to our effect in, in life, guided by inner In Buddhism, they call the guardians of the mind are two faculties, hiri and otapa, that guide human consciousness. When those faculties aren't operating, then there's more potential for external chaos and internal psychological chaos. So they're very important faculties. The first one is the ability to have a, a feeling of remorse. If we do an action of body, speech, and mind that has created pain for ourselves or another, being able to feel that as information and then using that information to adjust our, our activity. It's, it's different than, you know, it's, it's not guilt. Guilt in a way... Uh, is not a very wholesome state of mind, actually. C- creating a guilty self is actually an obstruction. <laughs> it's a hindrance. But having, this, it's having a, a feeling of remorse, regret, is, is healthy. Turning that feeling into a guilty person is unhealthy. There's only mindfulness that will begin to discern. This is another faculty of mindfulness that it can discern. It can discern wholesome and unwholesome. It can feel the effects... Of wholesome and unwholesome action, it needs to, to guide our way. Yeah. What is the effect of my action and my speech? And even my, you know, the the kind of mind states that I if I, I dwell and make much of very negative mind states deliberately, what is the effect of that? Being able to feel. So that's one aspect of what we would call conscience, and the other is is called a dread of uh, wrongdoing. So if we really, really felt upset and then felt very, very violent and wanted to act it out, if we have a a healthy conscience, hopefully something would come up and go, hang on a minute, (laughs) this might not be a good idea. You know, just take three mindful breaths, 10 mindful breaths, calm down, take a walk you know so this is something that helps guide uh, consciousness human consciousness to keep it within the bounds of of careful living non-harming when that gets overridden or gets compromised sometimes it's compromised through you know the morals the so-called morals of a society aren't necessarily ethical and they can overwhelm an internal sense of ethics so sometimes an internal sense of ethic can come into conflict with the external social morals, religious morals. So it's you know it's, it's a challenge to stay ethical, to stay conscious, to 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 have this operating in a healthy way. But if we, if it does, we can begin to trust ourselves. It's very very important because as the deeper aspects of these path of this path unfolds, this encouragement to really begin to trust and to let go. We want to know that we're letting go into something that can contain and can hold, and we're not letting go into chaos or psychological breakdown or confusion. So little by little, this, this, this placement of mindfulness and the ethics, they're like containers that guide and hold and you know, enable us to learn to live in a more trusting and fluid way. As we do so, we can begin to sense sometimes that the, the experience of the self starts to... We start to feel the self in a different way. And it's not a question of trying to knock out the self. You know. You know, the self will operate, but it becomes something that's more responsive, more fluid, more in tune, more uh, what is appropriate for what is needed rather than a self that's very defended... Kind of shaped by these ancestral voices that I was talking about on the retreat the fear of no one, there's no one there for me, or I'm not lovable, or I never get what I need, or there's not enough support. Some of these ancient voices that, that feel like us and maybe are us, and then they ricochet into. A, what's been passed down from generation to generation i don't belong you know these these kind of tendencies that shape the self in in in, in more defended rigid closed fearful uh, ways undermining confidence undermining a sense of well-being you know, this is a kind of a a, a, a sense of self that's more um, like a prison. It sort of restricts the awareness. It's a constriction. So, so you know, it's, it, as we begin to, in a way, release out of those structures and 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 resolve and begin to be able to heal and let go of some of those patternings that are no longer functional. We don't, they're, not, uh, they're not really that functional. <laughs> they might have been functional somewhere along the line, but they're not anymore. You know, and then we, we, as we release, we're learning to get a sense of our being that's not constricted by those voices and those impulses and those shapes. You get a feeling of being able to live in a more spacious a place of, of more fluidity and awareness. So, the self then that appears, there is the self will appear, but in a more, you know, according to what's needed, a more fluid way, more rooted in the depth of, 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 of connection. Or this independent, fragile thing that's always comparing itself. Or, Feeling overwhelmed, self is able to arise, conditioned on what's needed, respond, and then recede back into awareness. You don't need to have a self there all the time. If it's appropriate, self will arise according to our individual inclinations. Be adaptable, fluid, responsive. Can hold appropriate boundaries as is needed, and most important, can be authentic rooted in its own inner authority, its own wisdom, its own knowledge, not susceptible so much to the views and opinions that shape and intimidate condition human consciousness. So in this way, you know, you know, we can feel, you know, sometimes people say, well, no self, does that mean I'm just going to be nothing? What does, this, what does it really mean? It's not that there's no response, there's no individuality, but it's, it becomes more rooted, our experience of our self. Experience our individuality, but it's, it's less, it's, it's something that's more like the surface of the wave on the ocean instead of the whole, the whole picture. Begin to sense the depth. And, the, and that depth is this root in, in awareness and mindfulness and presence. And we begin to get a sense of how the forms of the self arise appropriately in response and then can dissolve back into the stillness, into the silence, into presence. As we feel that, in a way, receding out of the self, what I I sense is happening, actually, in many ways, and where this practice is leading us, you know, we have our own individual unfoldings, leading all of us individually. But I sense we're almost like at a cusp. I like to think of it as an evolutionary cusp. We're experiencing, usually when we're caught up in our self, uh, without any reflection, without any mindfulness, then or caught up in the conditioning of the mind, the these ancient voices. That, uh, and, and that aren't really reflected on or resolved or healed, we see everything around us as an object to ourselves, which sort of stimulates this endless sense of, of, of grasping the of fear. And when that begins to recede, instead we begin to feel ourselves as, as part of everything. Everything is a part of us. There's nothing that's an object to us ultimately. Everything is a part of us, which is a very different premise from which to experience life, to be in life. In this way, if this, this, uh, more and more people are really experiencing this or having a sense of this, It's more uh, unitive consciousness rather than such a dualistic consciousness. There's no longer such a a sense of those out there are that... I mean, there there is that, in a way, polarization, but I think there's something else happening that's very interesting, that no longer those out there are so different. That, we're, that there's much more awakening to the interconnectedness of us all. And I feel in this way that um, as we become more mindful, not only are we learning to free the personal self and live in a more fluid and responsive way, careful way, but we're also beginning to enter and open into a collective consciousness or a collective awareness or an awareness that includes the whole. It's not separate from anything else. And this, this, is, a, this is where the, the letting go, the, the emptying out starts to connect with a real sense of compassion, of resonance, compassion in the way of being able to really feel with and resonate with others feeling our sense of belonging within the whole. So the mindfulness, a path begins with this Training of being here, how is it now? What are we present with? Steadying ourselves in the breath, in the body. See? Little by little, it deepens into us being able to receive more and more of our experience, opening for the sake of reflecting. Little by little, being able to free ourselves from any identification with the phenomena as it arises and pass, recognizing a deeper refuge in awareness, in presence. And as we do so, allowing ourselves to, as we trust and deepen into that, recognizing that our home, here and now, is uh, rooted not only within the body, but within awareness, But also within the consciousness that is that it includes everything. Everything is arising and appearing, being touched by the mindful, compassionate aware heart, is within the mindful and compassionate aware heart. So mindfulness then becomes the beginning and the end of the journey. We rest in this simplicity of being present here and now. Ajahn Chah said, you will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your heart will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha.